Welcome to season two of the Artists at Play podcast. I'm Marie Renvelez, and on our first episode this season, we are revisiting what has become an Artists at Play tradition. Since 2015, we have opened our seasons with a special event we call Artists at Play at Play. The Artists at Play producers come together to write and perform original short pieces, and the one rule we have is absolute truth. No pretending we're other people, no pretending we're in another time or place. And each year, something special comes out of that event. It's difficult to pinpoint what that special thing is, but for me, it's that through the sharing of space and of ourselves, everyone in that room, the audience, the producers, the artists who join us in this process, we feel closer to each other. We feel connected by truth and vulnerability. And by the end of the night, I truly believe that we are a stronger community. Because of how the pandemic was affecting our lives, one way being that Los Angeles was the epicenter of the COVID surge around the new year, we were unable to do the event this year. But in honor of the 10th anniversary since Artists of Play was founded, we have selected some of our favorite pieces for the podcast. And since these are being presented in audio format, we unfortunately had to leave out some of our favorite group and interactive pieces that are pretty much impossible to recreate for you here. But with that, whether you are new to Artists at Play or if you have followed our theater collective since 2011, we hope there is something you hear that simply brings us closer. We really miss in-person theater and we can't wait to share space with you again soon. I'm joined by my fellow Artists of Play producers, Stephanie Lau, Julia Cho, Nicholas Pillipil, and Catherine Chow. And so let's hear from each of them one by one. A note on content, the very last piece, which is my piece, includes swearing and talk of bodily functions. Okay, let's hear from our producers. Julia. Hi, Marie. <laughs> How's it going? Oh, you know, going every day is a day. <laughs> so, so what, what piece are you going to share with us? I will be sharing the story of Han, which is essentially, uh, my child's birth story and, uh, the story of how his name came to be. And when, and when was this one written? This was 2018. And so, uh, he, he wasn't even a a one year old and he was there at the show. We brought him to the show. Oh yeah. I remember. Oh my gosh. He was still young enough enough where, you know, it was just like, gosh, it's all a blur now, but you know, it wasn't, I mean, it was still kind of like a regimented sleep schedule, but it was okay for him to just be out and about. (laughs) So he was asleep? No, he was awake during the show, but you know, now it's like, he would be, it would be bedtime. Right. I'm like our show would kick off, but at, at that time, because they're so young, you're able to um, just kind of shuttle them around wherever <laughs> they'll doze off whenever they need, wherever they are. <laughs> so, so can, can you share why, why you chose this, this piece in particular? Yeah, I, I definitely had some reservations about sharing it because it is one of the more personal pieces I, I wrote for, an artist that play a play show, but um, just thinking back on where I was in my life and becoming a parent, becoming a mom, and it it is such um, kind of a, a significant moment in my life, and and definitely has shaped or reshaped who I am. And, and how I navigate through life now. Um, and, you know, through it, it definitely affects my work 
as well. So um, yeah, I felt fitting to kind of revisit this piece, especially I don't, especially because I don't know if I would have shared um, so openly and publicly in any other context. So it, it also reminds me of how special this annual event is for us as a group and for our community. And it was at the Armory, which is where um, I got married. So I got to do the piece <laughs> on the steps of where I got married, but now with a child and, and my husband there. So it was, it was such a unique opportunity to, to share this story in that place, in that moment. Wow. You really like put all those pieces together and like, <laughs> <laughs> like, Hey, I can really make a big, like uh, or at least like, you know, it's like, it's such a symbolic moment if right. not for anyone else, but for yourself. Right. Yeah. And that, like this means a lot to you and that that specific physical spot mean like means a lot to you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so anything, anything you want to share about like in the time since, I mean, we've all, there's been a lot of talk about the growth, the personal growth, especially like in regard to uh, the pieces that, that were written in 2018. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's also been like literal physical growth as represented by my child <laughs> who is now a toddler. <laughs> um, and just just thinking about how much how much we've we've grown as people how how much we've experienced together how many life changes we've all shared with each other it was actually really kind of lovely and sentimental to look back and remember all of that just in in the the rereading of of this piece yeah, totally. Totally. And I, and that's, and that's exactly one of the reasons why I, you know, I was like, when we were pitching episode ideas for the artists at play podcast season this year of, I was like, you know, I really love artists at play at play. And, mm -hmm. and I would just really love to kind of capture a, a sliver of, of what we get to create and perform and share. So, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for introducing this show, this whole format to us and forcing us to do it every year. <laughs> <laughs> Says the woman who uh, just a few minutes ago was like, I wish we did one this year. <laughs> you forced it upon us initially, but now we, we cherish it and yeah, I, 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 it does make me excited for the, for the time we can get back in person and do this again together. Yeah. It's like now, like part of our, our institution. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this is the story of Han. The story of Han. Fun fact, my husband, Chris and I were married on these steps. My sister has a baby girl who just turned one. Chris and I hosted our niece's first birthday party. In Korean, it's called Dol Janchi. Dol meaning birthday and Janchi meaning party. Our cousin Christine was there along with her mom who asked us, did you know that Christine had a broken arm at her Dol? Uh, no, we hadn't. So she tells us how on the day of Christine's Dol, she was cooking all this food and had left Christine on the bed, and my sister and I were with her, jumping up and down, and I guess during the jumping, we somehow broke her arm? My aunt assumes that Christine is fussy because she wasn't paying attention to her, but it just progressively gets worse over the course of the Toljanchi. It wasn't until the next day that our grandmother was like, there's something wrong with that baby's arm. Then my aunt says, this is why it's helpful to have elders around, because young parents, new parents don't know a lot. My sister then told our aunt, having you here is like having our mom with us, just having a mom around. And it made me sad to know that we'll never get to hear our mom telling stories from our childhood. We'll never learn new stories of things that happened back in the day. 
Chris and I both lost our mothers the same year, but we always try to share what we remember of them and make sure that we pass it on to our little guy. And in that same vein, we want to make sure that we keep telling stories about him so he'll have these anecdotes to remember as he gets older. So I'd like to take this occasion to share with you the story of how our son and his name came to be. Back in April, Chris and I had gone to see a reading of Nicholas's play. We went to go eat, then home to sleep. At some point, I get up to pee, which was typical at that time being my third trimester. And to put it delicately, there was pink in the bowl. I'm silently freaking out, imagining the worst. I call out, Chris, we have to go to the hospital. And Chris immediately falls out of bed and we're at the hospital. This is maybe 7 a.m. in the morning. The doctor examines me and we're told my membrane has ruptured. We don't know what this means exactly, but eventually we learned that basically my water broke. But I wasn't feeling any contractions. I asked the doctor, does this mean the baby's coming out today? And he just looks at me and nods. Yeah. Once your membrane is ruptured, it increases the risk of infection for the baby. This is still a month before my actual due date. We didn't bring anything. Looking back, it may have been a good thing we were so stunned and blindsided, or else I think we would have freaked out a lot more. They moved me to a different room. Didn't realize until later it was a labor and delivery room. Chris had gone to get coffee, so he comes back, is told his wife has been moved, finds me, and asks, So, did they say when we get to go home? And I tell him, Oh no, we're not going home. This is happening. They induce contractions, and it's like Goldilocks. At first, they were a little too slow and spaced out. Then they were a little too fast, and then they're able to get it just right. I'm undergoing contractions for the rest of the day. No epidural, by the way. There were some complications with the baby's placement and not getting enough air, but by 2.07 a.m., I was ready to push. And by 2.36 a.m., there he was. We did it. We had a boy. And then we realized, oh, we don't have a name. Because we were waiting to be surprised. We didn't know if we were having a boy or a girl. We did have a girl name picked out, but boy names we were still brainstorming. We actually filled out the birth certificate form because the lady told us we should start processing your information. And you can plug in the name later. We were also in the hospital a few extra days because our guy had jaundice, which buys us some time. Essentially, we're back at square one because none of the names we had really fit him. A name that we were kind of considering was Dash. Maybe Dash because he came so fast. So Fast and Furious. Fast and Furious being one of our favorite film franchises. Then we start joking around. Paul Walker Miyazaki. Toretto Miyazaki. Han Miyazaki. Then we go, wait a minute. That doesn't sound so bad. We both go to our phones and start doing a little research. Now, I already know that Han means various things in Korean. And as it turns out, based on the context, Han can mean Korea, the country itself. Within a name, it can mean big. Because our guy was so small when he was born, I thought it would be a name he could grow into. It also refers to this quality that all Koreans are supposedly born with. And the gist of it is... Equal parts great despair, but also great hope. I share all this with Chris. And then he says to me, Jules, guess who was born on this day? Who? Sung King, the actor who played Han in Fast and Furious. I mean, if that's not a sign, I don't know what is. That sealed the deal. It's funny because the name Han was not on our radar at all. Even now when people assume, oh, was he named after Han Solo? We just go, yeah, sure. But now you know the truth. Heaven forbid anything happened to us, but at least there is a room full of people who gathered at the armory on January 26, 2018, who can collectively share with Han his birth story. Thank you. Hi, Nicholas. Hello. Hello. So, uh, so what, what piece are, are you, uh, sharing with us for the, for this? 
I am bringing back the crowd favorite from 2018. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm doing a piece from the 2018 artist at play at play called. It's not why not. Why not was the prequel. This one is called. I keep hearing not drinking. So why did you pick this piece? Well, looking back through all of my pieces, it had like a running theme of like self-deprecation and body dysmorphia. Like every single one was like, I hate myself because I feel heavy, you know. And but this one, I think, was the last one where I really talked about those issues. And I felt like it was the most like grown up approach into telling everyone how big I felt. Um, so I was like, OK, that makes sense. And, you know, I liked it. It was like a nice time capsule being like, oh, how interesting. Because that was also the same time where I had just started therapy. And I was also addressing a lot of like mental health things, which explained a lot of the reasons why all of my previous pieces were about being sad and fat, you know. And so like this one was like the beginning of the journey to wellness, I would say. I see. I mm. see. And so, so since this was written and performed three years ago, uh, are there any, are there any updates or just kind of things that you want us to be prepared for, um, as, yeah, as we head I, into? I think I, I do drink alcohol again. I love, uh, Trader Joe's $2 Chardonnay with a few ice cubes in it. I gained all the weight back and a little bit more probably, well, within those three years, I've like gained and lost all that weight back like three times, like, to be honest. <laughs> well, and then one of those years is uh, in a pandemic, year, right? So, yeah. um, but the biggest thing when I was reading this and recording it is like how many times and freely I used the word fat. And it made me so uncomfortable because in today's world, I don't think I would say that word the way I was using it just because of, you know, sensitivities that people have and that I have developed um, just being aware of what words mean and how, you know, like what is like the proper representation for these people and am I like appropriating a certain like body type when I don't have it, which is kind of what I delve into in the piece where it's like, this is what I see and how I felt, but going to therapy, it was like a dysmorphia thing. But still, like, it's like the perception of, like, am I the right person to be saying that word so much? Like, do I own it? And I feel like I don't, even though I feel like I do. So just hearing me say that so much in such a negative way, like, really made me feel uncomfortable. So if you're hearing that, I'm sorry, but I've grown. <laughs> right, exactly. You've grown in the yeah. last three years and you realize like what what you had written, but you know, like it's about this ownership, like this, this is who you were three years ago. Mm -hmm. This is where you were, and that's not you anymore, right? So yeah, and I think I've learned also like the word fat isn't a negative thing. And that's what I always saw it as. And you'll hear it in the piece because of like my upbringing and how it's just always been ingrained in me. And, you know, you're like a Filipino woman, how hard it is to be a Filipino person growing up when you're not skinny and light. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, right. it's very that. <laughs> totally. I'm so I'm so with that. <laughs> OK, this piece is called Not Drinking. Not Drinking. Last year, I gave up drinking alcohol. I downloaded the Sober app and everything. As of now, it's been 8 months and 14 days. Now admitting this makes it seem like I had a problem. And if you were here last year, I gave you proof to support that statement with the piece I wrote, a love letter to wine entitled, Wine Not. But I don't think I had a problem with alcohol. Sure, I drank a lot. Ish. And yeah, maybe sometimes I fell asleep on my couch instead of my bed, and a few times on the floor next to my couch. But it wasn't like alcoholism. I was nowhere near a DUI or anything. I thought of my drinking as more of a coping mechanism to deal with my undiagnosed depression. I'd like to think that I was less of an alcoholic and more of a clingy boyfriend type, struggling with insecurities and living in constant fear that my hot sex partner is going to leave me for someone white. Then why give it up? What drove me to stop drinking wine? Honestly, 
I just wanted to be the best version of me. I wanted to finally achieve my all-time dream of being skinny. Did you even know that alcohol makes you fat? I read it on the internet and I was mortified. I guess I knew beer gave you beer belly, but wine? I always thought drinking a lot of wine was okay because of antioxidants or something. But wine has calories and shit. Wine also makes you fat. It was betrayal, and I felt cheated. And so I said goodbye to wine, and I threw all of her stuff into a car and lit it on fire, Angela Bassett style, and I never looked back. Since I've stopped drinking, I've lost 19 pounds and 7% body fat. None of my clothes fit me anymore, and I'm always cold. It's been amazing. Now, I'm not trying to start the new Atkins by saying if you stop drinking, you'll get super thin, because maybe you won't. But maybe if you drink as much as I did and all of a sudden stopped, your body will turn on you and make you lose 10 pounds. Seriously, for the first time in my life, I don't feel morbidly obese. I feel so skinny that I started doing yoga. The hot sweaty kind. The kind that white people do. I feel so skinny that skinny white people do not scare me anymore. And I know, it sounds crazy. Boys aren't allowed to say the word fat or even consider themselves fat or whatever. A boy saying that they're fat is like coming out by in the early 2000s. Everyone just calls you crazy and say, that's not a thing. People get so mad, like, say fat and I swear to god there's some horrid human ready to jump from behind a trash can to tell you, you're not allowed to say that. And it's like, I'm not even trying to be malicious, I'm just speaking my truth. I am fat. And then they're like, you are crazy, you are not fat, fat people are fat, you're appropriating fat culture. And then I'm like, have you seen me naked? It's like, god Melissa, leave me alone. Never trust anyone when they say, you're not fat. They're lying to you. They probably think you're fat. Oh my god, no, you're not fat. You're so skinny. You're perfect the way you are. Never change. They say to you while you're drowning in a burger and fries with a beer and have ketchup on your double chin. It's like, stop lying, Tina. I'm a cow and I need you to shame me. It's for my own good. Besides myself, the only other people who were comfortable calling me fat were Filipino women over the age of 60. And I respect that. Homegirls keep it real. And I'm not over-exaggerating, seriously, this is my life. My relationship with weight has always been this love-hate thing, kind of like Nicole Kidman and Alexander Skarsgård and Big Little Lies. It's been very unhealthy, kind of abusive, but I swear it's real. In high school, people thought I was goth because I only wore black, but I only wore black because it was slimming. In 8th grade health class, when they warned us about bulimia, instead of learning the lesson, I thought, that sounds perfect for me. My therapist said it's body dysmorphia. She gave me a pill. It helps, but we're still working on it. She did in fact tell me to stop drinking and to go on walks for my depression, but little did she know the drinking is what would do the fix. I now consider myself a skinny person. Hi, I'm Nicholas and I'm skinny today, is how I introduce myself. But that fat kid who used to be called cholesterol by his cousins still lives in me. I still have moments of weakness like yelling at myself in the mirror and crying if I accidentally eat cake. And that's how I know I wasn't an alcoholic. Giving up drinking that was easy, I don't miss it at all, but giving up cake? Almost impossible. It's funny cause once you do lose the weight, all the same people who told you you weren't fat like to tell you things like, you lost so much weight, you look so much better, amazing, yes, gaga, work, twirl, death drop. And it's like, how do you respond to that? Really? How? Because I never know what to say, so I just twirl and say thank you. But on the inside, I start to crumble because I realize the whole time these hookers have been lying to me. Literally everyone but the 60-year-old Filipino ladies have been letting me live my life as a fat person, eating his way into stretch marks and heart disease. And it's like, bye Brenda, you are dead to me. Usually when people get sober, they get better, you know? But honestly, I feel like it's turned me into a monster. Because now all I do is drink water, water with lemon, and kombucha, and I only get drunk on the feeling of thin. On New Year's Day, I made everyone drink kombucha and coconut water and lied to them by saying, it'll be more fun this way. But skinny sober me, no fun at all. Before I'd drink and be loud, I'd sing you a song, tell you a joke, hug you a bit too much. And now, I'm just obsessed with eating chickpeas and trying to be skinny, telling you I feel skinny, not drinking, telling you I'm not drinking right now, 
yoga and telling you that I do yoga. I feel like I've become one of those rich white ladies in Orange County where I live. The ones who shop in boutiques with little dog bowls outside of them. The ones who only eat salads with dressing on the side and like to tell you how perfect their lives are. The ones whose religion is Pilates. They are monsters. And I question, is this what I have become? Because I love salads. And I'm telling you right now how perfect I feel being skinny and I do love yoga. Am I a monster? You tell me. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Good. So, <laughs> so what piece? Uh, so, what piece are are you doing for us for for this uh, artist of play at play podcast? I'm doing my portion of a piece that we did in 2018 called With Love, Your Biggest Fan. And I'm doing, it was a bit of a competition where I think you, Marie, Nicholas, and I competed to see who had the biggest fandom. And so I just basically compiled all of my portions. Oh my gosh. I remember, I remember how embarrassing it was to write those and like also freeing and and like this dread of revisiting who I was in 1997 to 1999. Yeah, there was definitely embarrassment, but also it felt like it was going to come out. Like as soon as you guys uh, proposed this topic, I was like, oh God, I have so much to say, but I really don't want anyone to ever hear any of this. So now, of course, we're recording it for posterity. <laughs> right, right. For it, it'll be up until until you know for as long as we have this podcast so thank you thank you so much for sharing um so okay so so you have this piece you wrote it three years ago and um any anything you want to kind of amend before we hear it <laughs> I think the elephant in the room is that the piece sort of ends with this like self-realization of how much I've grown from being a Pirates of the Caribbean fan and the punchline is sort of around the fact that um, these like abuse rumors were coming out about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp and how I immediately didn't side with him but I think I think I've actually never really looked into it myself because I mean I don't really pay attention to Johnny Depp anymore <laughs> so I think that he is not has actually I don't know I think he's not actually come out as the abuse the main abuser in that situation and so I guess that would be the biggest factual disclaimer in terms of like personal growth um I mean I just yeah I just don't really pay attention to any of that stuff anymore and I don't really know what's going on about anything related to Johnny Depp or Pirates of the Caribbean um although recently I have I do have my Jack Sparrow action figure out on display in my room again and I'm like a little bit like, uh, how do I put this? Like, I've watched it again recently, and I just have that doll there still <laughs> as sort of like a reminder of like, I don't know how to explain this, like, like of the types of big, fantastical stories that I really love and like that sort of daring to tell a big, big, big story like that. Um, so it has a different meaning now for me. Um, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And let's hear your piece. There's a group of people out there who can never hear Pirates of the Caribbean without groaning. I'm referring to everyone who knew me from 2005 to 2011 and ended up as collateral damage while I fell headfirst into the Pirates fandom. And by that, I really mean a fandom of one. There was me, the truest Pirates fan in existence than everyone else who fawned over it for lesser reasons, like Johnny Depp being hot or, God forbid, Orlando Bloom. My devotion was free of sexual taint. It was a devotion to a paragon of the cinematic arts. It manifested as fan art on my exam papers, a weird, affected sway in my step, and pirates' references shoved into every school assignment. Two gentlemen of Verona adapted at the local park as two pirates of Verona. 
I watched the movie every day after school, and if my parents were coming home early, I'd watch the shorter special features instead. On long car rides, my younger sisters and I would recite the entire movie over and over and over, with voices. I paid my tithe at the House of Mouse. $15 for tickets to a screening at the El Capitan, $60 for a Jack Sparrow action figure who spoke. Alas, he did not speak with Johnny Depp's real voice, so I forbid everyone from pushing the button that activated his terrible catchphrases. In fact, I judged all Jack Sparrow wannabes. One of my first tweets ever was about the imposter on Hollywood Boulevard. Another Jack Sparrow replied to me with, You must be talking about the other guy. He's the worst. And that was how I discovered the highly competitive world of Jack Sparrow impersonation. This eventually evolved into an obsession with Johnny Depp, and perhaps this hasn't aged all that well. But back in the day, I trawled forums with names like Depp Impact, in which a bunch of older women I didn't know gushed about how Johnny aged like fine wine. But he was my gateway into American culture. I watched all his earlier work and discovered Jim Jarmusch and Terry Gilliam, Iggy Pop and Tom Petty. I tried stop-motion animation because of Corpse Bride and read up on gangsters in the 30s because of public enemies. Now I just know things about J. Edgar Hoover, for no reason. For the longest time, my favorite film was this surreal Serbian-American movie from the 90s that was too weird for release in the U.S. called Arizona Dream, starring Johnny Depp and Faye Dunaway. I wanted to make movies just like it. I still kind of do. If I loved Pirates with a Fire of a Thousand Suns, I hated it just as much. I would make a big deal out of quitting the way one does cigarettes or heroin, and then succumb immediately into relapse. My affliction gave me complexity as a suburban teenager. Finally, one day, somehow, I found the strength to tear all my posters from the walls and throw out every medallion, spyglass, and plastic sword. I was free. A few summers ago, I came home from college and screamed because I thought someone had hung a large rat in my closet. But it was only my Jack Sparrow wig. And when all the rumors started coming out about Amber Heard and I didn't immediately side with him out of blind admiration, I told myself, I've really grown as a person. Because while I've moved on from Pirates of the Caribbean, its impact on my life has been very deep indeed. Hey, Stephanie. Hi, Marie. <laughs> um, so, so what, so what piece are, are you uh, sharing with us today for the Artists at Play Play podcast? So I am sharing the very first piece that I did um, for the 20, the very first uh, uh, Artists at Play at Play event. So it was titled Swimming in Circles. And it was basically talking about my experience with having a miscarriage. That was 2014? Was 2015? it 2014? 2015. But yeah, so I mean so so that that first that first artist at play at play that we did is kind of I feel like it's pretty monumental in that it it really set the tone for for the subsequent artists that play at plays that we did. And, yeah. and I also feel like your piece was also something that had set the tracks for how deeply personal we would go. You know, I remember when we were planning that show, like the first, the, the you know, that towards the end of 2014. So I think we spent like probably two, two and a half months working on it. And I, I, I remember going in there, like knowing, not knowing what this was supposed to be, what we were going to do, what role I was in. I mean, I was just completely like, like dumb to everything. And I think I finally felt like, well, I'm just going to have to like really go for it because especially when it comes to performance, like I really, I really doubt myself. Right. I mean, like all those years with cold tofu, you know, I still never really felt that I was doing anything correctly or funny or entertaining or any of that. So when it came down to artists at play at play, I just thought, okay, I, I have to really dive in 
and what's something that was huge to me and my family. Um, and then also it was kind of like the announcement too, that I was pregnant. I mean, that piece taught, uh, you know, put forth the fact that I had had a miscarriage um, and, and then also that I was pregnant at the time. And, and then, you know, uh, four months later had my second kid. So it was, it was, I, I think it just was the way that I had to do that show. And it's ultimately, um, it made me, I felt actually really comfortable. Like once we were already, once we were up there, like doing it, because the audience was so great. Like our audience who came out to see us, like it was the first time we'd ever done the show. And we had this like huge audience that was like beyond what we thought would show up. Like I remember scrambling, like we have to put up 30 more chairs, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we had to keep adding chairs because we ran out of seats for people. Right. Yeah. And we were starting to pull like, like office type chairs. Right. <laughs> and we sat those like off to the side because we had set the 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 metal stools up close so you couldn't sit in these armed chairs like regular office chairs behind the stools because you couldn't see I, yeah it was like it was crazy but that I think that audience is what made everything feel like correct you know with that with that event for us with the with the five of us with everyone just kind of um, going with it with this like crazy idea and and yeah, just thank you because it, it has been a really fun journey to revisit, um, not only like the past pieces or even the photos that we get, you know, mm. I feel like some of our most fun photos are kind of like come, come from this annual event and, and yeah. And, and the audience, the, the fact that we get to kind of bring our audience together and with us, and we all just kind of get to experience this vulnerability together. Um, it's really wonderful. And it's one of my favorite things that we get to do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, um, great. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's hear swimming in circles. Swimming in circles. You're not old, but you're not young either. Said my OBGYN in 2012. I was 33 and a half years old and just had a miscarriage. My doctor was talking to me about my options as I was getting close to the dreaded childbearing age of 35. For those of you who don't know, when a woman turns 35, the chances of having a difficult pregnancy and genetic abnormalities in the baby increases because eggs get old. In 2008, when I was 29, I had my daughter. I was the first among my friends to have a child. Three years later, we started trying to have a second baby, and no go. All the while, our friends were having their first child, and then their second. As they excitedly told me about their pregnancies, I would smile and say congratulations, and then go home and cry. But in early 2012, I got pregnant. We were so excited. I told my family right away and my co-producers at Artists at Play, because I was due in the fall when our show Edith Can Shoot Things and Hit Them would be running. Except on February 26th, while we were hosting an Academy Awards viewing party, I started to miscarriage. A house full of friends and I was losing my pregnancy. It was six weeks along and my body was shedding a mass of cells no bigger than the end of my pinky. We were devastated, but there was nothing that we could do. My OBGYN said to take some time off to let my body reset. So six months later, we started trying again. And again, no go. I thought it was bad when I got married and people constantly asked us when we were going to have a baby. It's even worse when you have one kid and people start asking you when you're going to have more kids. The polite thing to say, the thing that makes the other person feel comfortable about their question is, oh, we've been trying but nothing yet. Or, oh, we're enjoying the one we have for a little longer. But in my head, I wanted to stop the questions by honestly saying, yeah, we want to have more kids, but I had a miscarriage a few years ago, and my husband's sperm swims in a circle, so we're having a little trouble conceiving again. Except all that does is make the person feel bad for asking, and then I feel bad for making that person feel bad. So instead, I just sheepishly grin, 
repeat one of my standard responses and change the subject. While I knew that I wanted a second baby, I didn't want to go through the energy, time, and money that would be necessary for fertility treatments, especially since the chances of those working are slim when the problem is the sperm. So I started to accept that we would be a happy family of three. But now I get to be excited that we're going to be a family of four. Hello, Marie. Welcome to the hot seat. It's your turn. Yes, it's my turn. Hi, Nicholas. Thank you. (laughs) So tell us, why did you choose this piece for the podcast? So I chose my shitty year because one, I think it's, it might be the one I was, I might be the most proud of, uh, you know, in in terms of what I had written in the years of artists that play at play. Um, I, you know, I set out, I was like, you know what, I've never done stand up. And I know this is more of like a monologue stand up kind of thing, but um, yeah, but it was, but it was also, I feel like the piece that had a life of its own when it was performed. And so I feel like, you know, like, cause when, when we would rehearse it, I would perform it in a specific way. Whenever I read it off of the, the computer screen or paper, it, it, it read a specific way. And then I got in front of an audience and was on a stage and had stage lights. It just, I, I don't know what happened. I felt like a little bit transformed by it. You know, I just kind of, it, it came out in a, in a way that I had not rehearsed and it worked. And luckily we actually have like the recording from that day that it was performed and it was performed uh, a month before lockdown. <laughs> so it was my piece from to 2020. Was it really um, only a month before lockdown? That's yeah. Wow. Yeah. We performed in February and I remember we like had our post, our post-performance meal. We like went out and it was a Chinese restaurant And it was empty because people were being super racist already and not going to Chinese restaurants. And, and also I think too, that the, the, you know, the Asian community was also being maybe a little bit more, um, reserved and like, and already not going out. You know, I think that people were already starting to not go out, Mm -hmm. but we were seeing it a lot at Asian restaurants. Right. So, so yeah, so, um, it was a month because. I want to say it was like February 7th or so that we wow, did I can't believe that. that was like a year ago. It felt, it felt farther away to me, but I will say mm-hmm. having this like recorded from the event is very stand up, you know, like those CDs. I have Joan Rivers on vinyl and it's like very, like you hear the audience. So it's not theater today. It's stand up comedy. Right, right. Exactly. And, and I think one of my favorite things about the recording is um, that that Julia recorded it and, and you can hear her, (laughs) you can hear her laughing a little bit. And that's, and that might be like my favorite part that I, that I was able to make Julia laugh. So what made you want to do stand up? I don't know. I think, I think it might've started with the idea of having of of having this journey with uh my poop and and like you know because because it stemmed from the story of of like breaking my ankle and having to take these like heavy medications and so and 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 I and I think I was just kind of actually like sitting on a toilet and then came up with a line and I was like oh cool I think I got it because because the the, the whole theme of artists that play at play was firsts. So we all were like, we all had to kind of do things we had never done before. Right. And so I forgot. About so, that. yeah, <laughs> and I was like, yeah. okay, well, you know, what, what, what am we, you know, and I think we all just wrote like one main piece, yeah. right. We are, yeah, we, we, we like did like, I think the, yeah. So, so we all like wrote like one main piece for ourselves and, and I was like, well, what, what haven't I done yet? And what do I want to kind of try? And, and I was like, well, let's, let's try, 
let's try some stand-up. I haven't done that before. Um, and I was, you know, I think there was also that part of me that was like, let me try to fail almost. I don't know. I don't know. It was like, it was like kind of wanting to enter that territory of like, of just going for failure because, because growing up, it's like failure was never an option. And, and as an adult, um, you know, just kind of thinking about always striving for perfectionism and then realizing like, oh, perfectionism is a result or a construct of white supremacy. And so like, let me go for failure. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think stand-up comedy is a perfect place to try failure. So congratulations on that. Saying not saying that you failed. I thought it was very funny. And now let's dive into the stand-up comedy premiere performance by Marie <laughs> Ranvillez called My Shitty Year. Um, this is going to be my first time attempting stand-up. So. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget to tip your bartender. Okay, so, um, okay. The way that I think about poop changed the day that I broke my ankle. Um, it was a little bit over a year ago. Some of you may know this. And, and so I break my ankle. I go to the emergency room. And, and as they're discharging me, the doctors say, we're going to send you home with some opioids, um, oxycodone to be exact. And I just remember thinking, oh cool, I, thought, I heard those were good. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but then I was also thinking like, oh fuck, why opioids, like that's so intense. Um, and, and at this point in the evening in the emergency room, I had been given a lot of morphine. So, these thoughts could have happened two hours apart. Like, I don't know. I don't know. So, uh, but in my head, they're back to back. And anyway, so the pharmacist then handing over the oxycodone is telling me, so these make you constipated, so you have to get some stool softeners. I'm like, I didn't know this. Like, why? Like, what? What? Wait, did you just say that these make me constipated? Like, okay, so no one talks about the side effects of opioids, and I feel like the PSAs really need to be a little bit more upfront about this. You know, that like, opioid addiction means that you have a really hard time pooping, like, all the time. So, so like, I feel like it would deter, it would deter a lot of people if we all knew this. So, I end up um, being, taking the oxycodone for about two and a half weeks, and um, I have to say that I never really got the whole correct schedule between taking the oxy and the dulcolax, which is my stool softener of preference. <laughs> and so I think it was just like this like fear of like maybe taking too much dulcolax. And having to poop in the middle of the night. And the, you know, like the problem being that I can't walk by myself. So pooping in the middle of the night kind of means that I have to wake up Arthur, who's here. Hi. Hi. Um, and so waking up Arthur, I mean, like, I don't know if you know what it's like to wake up a hibernating bear. Um, and, and not to say that he wakes up grumpy. I'm talking about trying to wake up someone who sleeps like they're sleeping for the duration of winter. Um, and, and so like, so I'm just trying to find this like balance, right? Of like assertive, cause there's urgency. But then there's also like, I want him to be happy to help me poop. So I think I found, I think I found the right way to wake him up and it went like this. Hey Arthur, wake up! And so uh, it worked, that worked, right? And, and then talk about, talk about reaching a level in a relationship that I never really thought we would reach. Um, you know, pooping in front of Arthur wasn't like so bad. It was actually, it was actually quite comforting. He was like, help me down, help me back up. But like, if I knew 
that trying to skateboard for the first time meant that I was gonna be pooping in front of Arthur a couple weeks later. <laughs> I never would have gotten on that skateboard. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, so we had that. <laughs> and, and, and you know, and so, so this kind of level in our relationship was something that I wasn't really planning on reaching, at least until we were married, or like, 80. <laughs> so, um, so changes, so like bringing, so all of that, like last year, has really changed the way that I think about poop. And, and so now it's like, I kind of think about poop a lot. Especially when I'm sitting on the toilet, like, you know, like, here, here, here's my latest one. My latest conundrum. So, um, you know that feeling when, like, the little urge to poop comes? But then it's like, not enough. And then, and so you're just like, how do you poop the little poops? How do we poop the little poops, people? Because, like, it's really frustrating. It's, for, for me, like, I'm usually, it's usually at the end of my poop session, and I'm sitting there, I know that there's more. Um, but I am, I'm like, what do I do? Like, so I'm like kind of sitting there, and I'm hoping, and like, coaxing my digestive tract to maybe work a little bit more to like complete my little poop. Like a you complete me poop. And and like, but what else can we do? How do we poop the little poops? So, I mean, cause like really, I feel like I'm getting older and I don't have time to sit on a toilet and wait for a Cinderella ending of a poop to come. And to be honest, I think that waiting for a Cinderella poop ending <laughs> is kind of anti-feminist. <laughs> That's my time. Thank you so much. Artists at Play is a Los Angeles-based theater-producing collective dedicated to programming that explores the Asian American experience. The Artists Play producing team are Julia Cho, Catherine Chow, Stephanie Lau, Nicholas Philippeville, and Marie Ren Velez. Learn more about Artists at Play by going to artistsatplay.org and follow us on Twitter at AA Play. This Artists at Play podcast was produced by me, Marie Ren Velez, and edited by Nicholas Philippeville. Special thanks to Eloise Wong, who wrote and recorded our podcast theme.